allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today. But the core of science fiction, its essence has become crucial to our salvation. Tell me how many lights you see. Yeah! Oh! It's all lights! This is how liberty dies. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I am Miles McLaughlin. And tonight here on the diner, we are open, COVID-friendly. You know, everyone's sitting every other table and everyone wearing their masks on the way there. But we are we have with us a very special guest tonight. Miles, do you want to introduce this young man? I would. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the podcast, we have a very special guest, author of many great Star Trek and other tie-in novels, as well as a panelist I've enjoyed hearing at many a shore leave convention over the past uh, few years. Mr. Cox, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Well, thank you. Indeed, my name is Greg Cox, and it's been a long time since I've been described as a young man. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I appreciate that. But... Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 funny. We we met Greg uh, now, Miles, like over the years, like at, at Farpoint, Shore Leave conventions, um, and we've actually dialogued with having him on the show. But we have been unable throughout our eleven years of a show to actually make it happen until tonight. We can no longer say that Greg is now, you know, held us hostage and uh, we're up for ransom or whatever. Uh, but it's great to have it's great to have Greg on the show here. We found out tonight that he's like. Right in our backyard. <laughs> yeah, which makes it all the more ironic that I, I know, right? Diner, <laughs> as it were, you know. Right. Well, that's like, do you, do you know, uh, Greg? Do you know Jay Smith from HG World? Um, he's an author, audio. He, he lives in Harrisburg, anyways. And like, I'm following him. Like, he did a signing in Lancaster. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> so, anyways, whatever. Um, I remember doing. Before everything shut down, I remember doing a convention at a mall up in Harrisburg a few years ago. You know. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, it's like Keith. Keith was at um, at Zenkai Con one year, which is like right in the backyard when that when that con happens. It's an anime convention, and he just happened to I don't know what he was doing there. But well, in fact. This gives me a good sig that I am, in fact, going to be a guest virtually at Zincacon next month. Oh, that's awesome. I saw they were doing that virtual. That's awesome. So what are yeah, you doing? I, I was actually supposed to be a guest last year, but then they everything can't. stopped. And this year, Zincacon is going to be virtual. And yes, mm-hmm. I it's been announced on their website. I'm going to be doing two or three virtual panels on writing and editing and such next March. ZakenCon being our local downtown Lancaster convention, you know. Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty uh, it is pretty big. It draws in all sorts of people oh, from yes. uh, from all sorts of walks of life that are into the anime and manga realm, and obviously anything associated with that. Which, of course, writing's a part of that. The whole downtown area there of uh, Lancaster, kind of you know, at least in the good old days, got taken over by. People doing cosplay, you could walk into a coffee shop and there's Sailor Moon and there's Chewbacca and there's Boba oh, Fett. Yeah. There, you know. uh, 
one always wonders what the neighbors think. Okay. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. Are the, I think it's a boon. It was a boon to the local economy, you know, cause it just swarms of people. Right. And, uh, and it was just amazing. Uh, you go, as you said, you go into any restaurant, you go into central market, you know, our local market here. And, and it's just like everyone's cosplaying and he's all, all walks of life. And it was just, in fact, I, I would jokingly say to like, I teach uh, and one of the, things that I run at our school is the anime and manga club. But I would tell them, I said, you know, going to this con, if you aren't in cosplay, you're in the minority because it's really a cosplay con in a lot of ways, but, but. lots of costumes and people, I, I know I, I, I talked to the, the, the folks on Facebook, a lot of them, are, Oh my God, you know, they're you know feeling very cosplay deprived. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, it's now been, you know, I was talking to even one of my nieces who was very into fandom and she's, it's been over a year since she's been able to go, you know, cosplay at a convention now and she's yeah. going to withdrawal, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, for some people, that's a real big creative outlet for them. And this is the, uh, and it's. Well, what, it feels weird not, not to turn this into a, you know, COVID support group meeting, but yeah. Right, it, right. We've right been now going on a full year without having gone to a science fiction convention. Yeah. Which is probably the longest I've got it, you know, in my life for probably decades at this point, you know. Well, you know, I think about for you, especially this has been uh, Miles and I've observed over the years about how cons for especially writers are a way to network and connect and to see writers that you just, you know, you just aren't, you just don't see in New York or wherever else that you go. But here at a con, you kind of, you know, you get to kind of, share and talk and connect and network and it's um star trek novels have been conceived of and plotted in the bar at shore leave i can tell you that you know right trust me i this is this there were there were books that were born at the bar at shore leave i can tell you that <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh that's awesome and we were there yeah that's awesome. Surely, surely, for those who don't know, being a well-known established media con down in Hunt Valley, Maryland, that you know is held every you know, summer, which I've been going to religiously again for probably decades now. You know, yeah. My first surely was two thousand nine, and the great part about it was we were that was on the heels of uh, the, the new Star Trek movie coming out, so we were also still talking about that and what that means to start to star Trek and everything. So that was a, that was a fun time. And as you mentioned these days, I, I, I call it my, our high school reunion because it's at the one time, one of the times where, you know, all they attract lots and lots of us star Trek writers. And just that's our chance to get to get together for me to see people like Keith and Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore and Christopher Bennett and folks who I, Margaret Clark, who I these days don't see in the flesh as much as I used to when I used to live in New York, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Miles, did you want to? Uh, we've kind of already talked. Oh, I don't. Yeah. Need, I don't need me to do the formal introduction. But do you want to kind of uh, lead us a little bit with a discussion, or do you want to jump in? Do you want to have the discussion and talk about what's going on in our sci-fi world? I mean, how do you want to take this, Miles? I I, I want. I like to learn more a little about Greg. Uh, maybe we'll just start. Let's start with know, that, Greg. I want, yeah. Uh, so. What was it that first that got you into science fiction, both live action and literature? Honestly, and I, I, this is not a cop out. I honestly cannot remember not being into this stuff. A lot of this, 
we give credit to my father, who I, I grew up in the 60s, saw to it that I was exposed to all the classics. We watched The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. And was, I have dim memories of watching Star Trek on NBC on its original run. And of course, the syndicated reruns aired, you know, in the background of my entire childhood. Plus, Dark Shadows, and of course, growing up watching all the original classics, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Forbidden Planet. Um, I think the first grown-up novel I ever read as a kid was The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. So I just, you know, I, it's not joking, I, I just remember the, you know, Forbidden Planet, The Day There Stood Still, Star Trek, Twilight Zone, Bat, the original Batman TV series. Th th this was always the era in which I was breathing, you know. 12 cent comic books that you bought at 7 Eleven on the spin rack back before the days of specialty stores, you know. So mm. oh, that's cool. I don't quite remember 10 cent comics, but I remember 12 cent comics. But Ooh. <laughs> yeah, a little before your time. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, it, it, I, I, I've been immersed in stuff for as long as I can remember, you know. That's cool. That is awesome. So, after, after watching and reading sci fi, what made you decide? to kind of play in this sandbox and write your own stories? Well, it's funny. I was writing an essay about this just the other day. This is going to be a guest blog somewhere. But in hindsight, it seems inevitable. Like growing up, I remember writing my own stories about my favorite monsters and superheroes and everything. It wasn't, however, until the 80s when I discovered in college, I discovered organized science fiction fandom and started going to conventions. And that's when I started meeting and seeing in the flesh real writers and, you know, editors and things. And it's weird. It's like, you know, intellectually, you know, books don't grow on trees. You, you know that there are authors out there because their names are on the covers. But you don't think of it. It's not until, for me at least, until I actually started seeing them in the flesh. That, oh, this is a real job. Real people who live in my city do this. You know, yeah, people, how does this pe work? Pe people can get paid for this. <laughs> yeah, before I, like I, said, I just scribble notebooks and stick them in a yard. You know, oh, so how does this work? So there are submissions and you send things out to the stuff in envelopes and they send you rejection letters. And then sometimes they said, and yeah, I have to say the big cognitive leap was suddenly going to conventions and seeing people like Vonda McIntyre and Paul Anderson and Theodore Sturgeon, you know, in person and realizing, oh, this is a thing people do, you know this is possibly an option for me, you know. Um, when I started sending out stories and getting lots of rejection slips, but selling just enough to keep me hooked, basically, you know. <laughs> and you persisted. And I persisted. That's awesome. And also, eventually, David Hartwell, who is a legendary um, science fiction editor, he's the guy who, among other things, launched the Star Trek book line at Pocket Books back in the 80s. I, I got to know David, and David convinced me to New York to move to New York City. I, I grew up in Seattle to move to New York City because that's where the heart of science fiction publishing was. And if you're really serious about this, Greg, you should move to New York. And the, the phrase wasting your life in Seattle may have been used. But, you know, <laughs> David was sort of a mentor or protege. He can, you know, come on, Greg, move to New York, you know, commit to this and that, you know, I took the leap and did so. So what was well, the very first story that you ever sold? Well, that gets into the fuzzy realms of fanzines versus semi-prozines. Uh, okay, both. Still, you know, versus professional sales. 
my very first thing I ever got published was actually in a necros- necrophilia fanzine, which I should probably not admit to. But, <laughs> but then eventually, uh, on the pro level, I sold a handful of short stories to Amazing Stories magazine back in the day. Okay. I sold to Mike Sh- doing when I was back doing the starving writer thing. I sold to Mike Shane Mystery Magazine all while waiting tables and doing the starving writer thing. And in terms of tie-ins, the first thing I did is I, I sold a handful of Batman stories to DC Comics. My first cases of dealing with like licensed properties, which is what I ended up doing for the rest of my career. And that was a, a case of a friend of mine in publishing who found out that DC was looking for Penguin stories. This was in 1992, and the second Tim Burton movie was about to come out with Danny DeVito as the Penguin. And apparently the DC was looking for Penguin stories. A friend of me, hey, Greg, you, you, you know Batman, right? Let's get together and collaborate on some Batman and Penguin pitches. I know a guy at DC and that, you know, we sold a couple of Penguin stories and then a couple of Catwoman stories and then the rest is history. So then Star Trek. And I'm, as I like to joke, I, you know, I've been writing Batman since Michelle Pfeiffer was Catwoman. So. Oh, cool. There you go. I just had a new Batman novel come out about a year ago, so I've been sort of, you know. <laughs> so still doing it. Yeah. Um, how, now you grow up with this, and you, I, I hopefully I'm not jumping ahead here, Miles, but, you know, you grow up with it, and you begin to write in this franchise. How, I mean, you need you need to know the franchise to write in it, right? But uh, you obviously, there's, there's so much out there that it's hard, I, I would imagine it's hard to be a complete expert in it. Am I wrong about that? Well, it depends. I mean, to a certain degree, you know, the Star Trek is burned into my brain, especially the 79 original episodes of the original series. Although, yeah, even still, you know, thank God, you know, you've got the internet and you've got, I've got bookshelves of, you know, Star Trek encyclopedias, Star Trek technical manuals. You you, you can do your homework. And honestly, it helps to be a lifelong fan. But, you know, if you have to learn something, there was a case a few years ago where an editor called me up and said, Greg, are you a fan of X series? And I said, honestly, no, but I can be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but wait, and honestly, all, you know, these days of the internet, fine. I, I binge watched the first two, two seasons. I went on the internet. I read the episode guides. I went to the fan pages to find out what the fan pages like. And Oh, after about, it took me about two weeks of sort of cramming and, me saying, no, no, really, I'm working now as I watch, as I've been watching, binge watch episodes <laughs> on TV, and you know, and I wrote a book of the series. So, you know, you it, it helps to, you know, you have to do your homework. Some of it's easier, like I said, you know, obviously, it's, I, I have Spock's head in my brain. Now, how, who is this Spock guy? What's his motivation? I need it. No, no, I, I know that, you know, but you can, if you have to, educate yourself and, oh, fine, you know. And sometimes you end up doing a brand new series, you know. Um, I started writing my Deep Space Nine novel before the show, before seeing a single episode of the show, because mm. they sent me the Bible and the script for the pilot. And that was the same thing with Voyager. It was like, hey, Greg, there's this new show coming up called Voyager. At, at this point, I was, you know, part of the stable. So here's, here, here's, the, here, here's the Bible, here's the script for the pilot episode get going you know uh we need an outline by thursday you know so oh, okay no pressure yeah no pressure at all 
Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite era in Star Trek to write in? Oh, yeah. The original series. Um, I have enjoyed all of the various Latter-day series to varying degrees. But like I said, you know, nostalgia. That That's my Star Trek. That's the one I grew up on. Um, the Wrath of Khan is still, you know, the all-time greatest Star Trek movie of all time. I, I, I you know. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I like the variety of occasionally dabbling with Voyager or Deep Space Nine or whatever. But, you know, the original series is near and dear to my heart. So and that's what I've probably written the most of. Yeah. So the characters are a very familiar family to you. Yes. In a lot of ways. And like I said, I, I don't think it, I don't need to struggle to try to, you know, hmm, make this sound like Captain Kirk or, you know, Bones. Right. Trust me, I, I know these characters. And, and yeah, I still occasionally have to, what was the name of that planet in Wolf on the Fold again? Algernon, Axon, what was it? Oh, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> right. But that's, uh, that's what the internet that, is for. That, that's where you, you pull down your Star Trek companion and you look it up, you know. Right, um, right. Well, you know, if you don't look it up, Star Trek fans will surely tell you. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I got Chekhov's uniform wrong once, and boy, did I hear about it. Yeah, I, I described it having a blue uniform as ever read. Yeah, yeah, I heard about it. Okay. Jeez. Uh, so, <laughs> just got sloppy once, you know. Oh, my. Bound to happen. It is bound to happen. Unfortunately, like, these days, there are so many resources with websites like Memory Alpha and right. Wikipedia and... And of course, we now live in the glory days of, like I said, I've, you know, I've, you, I've got the entire original series on DVD as a backup. You can download any episode. I remember the rougher days where I, you know, you had to sort of, oh, Jesus, go slog all over town to try to find a mom and pop video store that had a VHS copy of the old TOS episode you, you're, you need to research. Yeah. I, I still spent an entire weekend, you know, pounding the pavement in New York City trying to find a copy of the counterclock incident, which was an episode of the animated series, which was not or finally finding it in a mom and pop video store in the East Village somewhere because I wanted to watch it for research purposes, you know. Nowadays, you can just, you know, go on to CBS All Access and download it, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, now it's just... appreciate the struggle, you know. So. No, I know, I know. <laughs> so, uh, did Miles doing some research, and we saw that you actually wrote a novel in the Kelvin timeline that sadly didn't publish, The Hazard of Concealing. Any chance yes. that we will ever read that? Um... I don't know. Uh, I'm going to be vague here. Believe it or not, there are. I, I, I'm not being coy here. I've never actually had any conversations with the powers to be about that. The I should mention that the powers that I got paid in full for that book, so no complaint. In fact, they right. called me up and told me the we're sorry for four reasons. It had nothing to do with that individual book. They just decided that for the time being, the Kelvin universe, you know, is off limits. You know, um, we're not publishing. So, if they, but don't worry, Greg, we'll pay you in full, which I should mention is more than you usually get. I've had other cases where books have been spiked at the last minute for reasons, and maybe you get a kill fee. No, they paid me for full. And also, um, it, it's people have spilled the beans. Honestly, I recycled that book, I cannibalized it and turned it into a TOS book um, later on. So, I, you know, it, to a certain degree, we will, you know, you have seen that book. It, it was called No Time Like the Past. <laughs> you know, I, 
Oh, I, I, I read I, that book twice. Okay, I enjoyed yeah, it so much. Yeah, book. Okay. Although it, 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 it was funny, that ended up being more of a challenge than I thought. My original idea is, oh, I'll just, you know, you know, turn Zachary Quinto into Leonard Nimoy. I'll just turn. And, but, it, but the process, because they are very different series and different backstories and continuities. I ended up, I, I'd say probably no time like the past is probably one third of the aborted Kelvin book, you know, you know. I ended up having to write a lot more new material than I expected. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I sort of cannibalized it. So I'm not sure if there would be an, you know, anyone who would, if it was to be republished now, people go, gee, this whole space battle seems kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah. But at the, time, at the time, it seemed like, well, shame to let that space battle go to waste. Right. <laughs> really battle there. So, you know. Well, it makes sense, especially if it's not being published, to be able to... At, at I, there was, like I said, not no real conversation, but it just I got had the sense it was not going to happen. You know, you know, so it seemed a shame to waste not want not. I've got a right. perfectly Star Trek plot here. Let's re- recycle it. You yeah, know, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. And by the way, I did not pull a fast one on pocket books. They knew what I was doing. I told them, "Hey, well, great, we need a new, new TOS for a book." I said, "Well, how about if I go back to the whole, you know, the aborted Kelvin book and see if I can." Do with that. Oh, that, that sounds good, Greg. Go ahead. You know, so shame let it go to waste. Yeah, so but, uh, I just want to say, Greg, I read that book uh, twice. It was just a fun book. Um, without giving too many spoilers, uh, Seven of Nine and the crew of the Enterprise go on an adventure, and it's just it's a it's a fun book. Well, basically, what I did there, you know, um, is um, I substituted Seven of Nine for Spock Prime. In the original version of the book, it was all about Spock Prime being the mysterious stranger from the future and everybody wanting his future information. Oh, okay. In the OS book, it was like, well, instead of Spock Prime, the Leonard Nimoy character, who was, you know, from the future of the Kelvin universe, oh, well, how about if the mysterious stranger, which brings all sorts of temporal prime, is is Seven of Nine. And the same plot with the Orions wanting to get her hands on her because she's got all this future knowledge and tech and, you know... But I, I, you know, but of course, in the course of writing the book, Seven of Nine is not Spock Prime, and they have different backstories. And I had to have a different reason for Seven of Nine to be in the past, since it couldn't be that she came through, you know, in the in the two thousand and nine movie. Okay, you know, right, so. right. I mean, so and I had to, I had to unfortunately lose all the stuff with young Spock interacting with old Spock. You know, so right because Seven of Nine is not the same character as elderly Spock, so. Again, it ended up being more heavily, but that was basically the premise was, oh, well, what if I take Spock Prime out of the book and put Seven of Nine in? Yeah. And it ended up being a very different book, but that was sort of how the it evolved. Now, you mentioned that... I, I hope, uh, go, go ahead, Miles. I, I hope we'll still see that book. I think it, that, that would be a fun read. I mean, I don't think we're going to see much of the Kelvin timeline anymore, so... Um, I have, Maybe no we'll in, I have no inside information on that. Uh, question for you. You mentioned that Pocketbooks came to you and said, yeah, we need another Star Trek book in the original series. Do they kind of just open it up and say, we need another one? And then you pitch them an idea and they say, yeah, yeah, yes or no? Or do they actually direct you and say, we want X, Y, Z? The honest answer is it depends. It, it is a collaborative process. It involves me. It involves, you know, 
uh, pocketbooks, and it involves CBS and, you know, at times Paramount. Um, but yeah, these days I am in the good position of being, you know, honestly, one of the usual suspects. So a lot of times it does begin with, hi, Greg, we we got a, we need a TOS book for next summer. What you got? And I pitch an idea and we go back and forth. Now, sometimes they may have a more specific idea. Like, hi, Greg, we want a trilogy about Q. What you got? What you got? You know, or we're, we're looking for something humorous. Can you give us, we're doing an anthology. There's no funny stories in this anthology. Can you give us something humorous? So, and it's collaborative. They, they have ideas, you know. But yeah, sometimes it's just, hi, we need a Voyager book. What you got? Or they may say, we want, and yeah, sometimes I pitch an idea. They go, eh, no. And sometimes, hey, that sounds great. Go for it. Right. And usually the way it works, people who don't know, I know you've probably gone over this with Dayton and Keith, is I write like a 12-page outline and we send it on to CBS for approval. And there's usually a bit of back and forth, do this, don't do this. Oh, that sounds great. Until we settle on a plot that we all agree on. I write the book. We then turn the manuscript in. It goes back and forth a little bit. Oh, do this, don't do that, you know. And that, that's how the process works. And sometimes, like I said, the editor may have an idea. Hey, I want a story about, you know, Mirror Universe Picard. Cool. And sometimes it's just, hi, we need a POS book for July. What you got, Greg? You know, um, and we, you know, go back and forth. Oh, very good. So one of my favorite novels that you've written was the, 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 the about Khan. Um, without giving spoilers, can you tell us some of the challenges you, you had in writing those stories? Oh, well, okay. Yeah, the, I did a trilogy of novels about Khan. The first two, which covered the sort of filling in the blanks, the first two were about the, the, the infamous eugenics wars of the 1990s, which are alluded to. And the third one was all about Khan's, you know, years of exile on City Alpha 5, the kind of fill in the blanks between Space Seed and the Wrath of Khan. In the case of the eugenics wars, the challenge was, of course, writing about the fearsome eugenics wars of the 1990s, which have come and gone, <laughs> you know, so... There were a couple of ways to handle that. We could just ignore real history and assume that there was some sort of post-apocalyptic, some sort of horrible apocalyptic war in the world of Star Trek. Or we could try to somehow, you know, shoehorn the Jags Wars into the actual 1990s we all lived through with O.J. Simpson and Bill Clinton and Monica and, you know, Lewinsky and, you know, Tanya Hardy. Okay. And we took the conceit of trying to somehow assume that the Jag Jors happened. So that was a sort of fun of, I, I think of that book as a crossword puzzle of trying to sort of mesh actual ninth, actual history with um, Star Trek, the Star Trek version of the 20th century and try to put the pieces together and make them all happen, you know? So that was, that was, that was a, that was the challenge there of trying to have fun with, you know, and indeed writing a Star Trek novel, the vast majority of which is set not in the 23rd century, not in the Enterprise. There, there's a framing right. sequence involving Kirk and Spock, but most of the book is, I think it starts in the 1970s and it takes, goes through Khan's life as he grows up in India and he, you know, you know, takes over 
large portions of Asia, as the wars with the other super, you know, it's, 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 it, these are novels about Khan, heavily involving um, Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln from Assignment Earth, since you know, it's logical. Right. What, what I also liked in that book was you brought in characters we saw from episodes of Voyager and D Space Nine in there. I mean, the ones that were involved in the 20th century, I, I, I think. But uh, they made anybody who appeared in a 20th century. I was trying to do the 20th century according to Star Trek. So pretty much anybody from, you know, Captain Christopher from Tomorrow's Yesterday, from Flint to, you know, I think that the only character who doesn't pop up is Whoopi Goldberg. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, the, the three the three people in cryogenics from the Neutral Zone episode of Star Trek. Right. Janeway's, Janeway's ancestor who popped up in that one episode of Voyager, you know. Part of the, the the game of that was, like I said, trying to do the Star Trek version of the 20th century, and that meant trying to bring in, you know, everything we've kind of seen, you know, uh, Quark's Quark's Roswell adventure, you know, the characters from those book that episode. Saw those people too, yeah. That was fun. That, that was a fun. It would be a Star Trek novel involving all these guest stars from Star Trek, even if, you know, like I said, you know, Spock and Kirk and McCoy were not front and center, you know. So earlier, when we first started recording, you held up a book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, this book, about what's on the like what's going on right now in your writing world? Yeah, this is my most recent Star Trek book. It came out in November. It is called A Contest of Principles. I'm holding up the book as we speak, although you cannot, yeah, viewers you at home cannot see it. But, but trust me when I say there's a gorgeous cover that has Kirk's McCoy on it. This is a, in fact, original series novel. It is set during the original five-year mission. And it involves, um, honestly, three different plot lines. What I did for this book is I basically, there's, a, there, there's three plots, three worlds. There's a Kirk plot, a Spock plot, and a McCoy plot. They each find themselves on different planets for, and separated from each other for most of the book, although the plots dovetail near the end. And that was partly a chance to kind of do one of my goals is I wanted to do, honestly, a McCoy novel. It dawned on me that even though I've been writing Star Trek novels for 25 years now, I had never written a McCoy-centric story. I mean, McCoy's always been there, you know, on the bridge, in sickbay, right. bickering with Spock, you know, getting morally indignant. Um, but I'd never actually written, so it was past time. So my way of doing well was to actually send McCoy off on his own adventure for a while. And then of course had to find something for Spock and Kirk to do to keep them busy while they can't come and rescue him right away. I, I, I could have facetiously called this book, you know, Star Trek, the search for McCoy or the search for both. Right, but, right. but yeah, so it, it, it ended up being a three, I ended up doing three plots with Kirk's dealt, and they're all sort of dealing with a complicated political situation in this one sector of space. So the plots, not completely disconnected, but they're all dealing with different parts of the elephant, as it were, you know. But yeah, the original impetus was, I want to write a McCoy novel. And that was, a good third of the book is all about, you know, is a solo adventure involving McCoy. And then the other subplot has actually Spock and Nurse Chapel out searching for McCoy. They're leading this rescue mission to try to find McCoy, who has mysteriously gone missing. And while Kirk is dealing with a very crucial, crucial 
crisis on another world, which unfortunately means he had to delegate the, the um, job of finding the missing Dr. McCoy to Spock and Chapel and their rescue team. Very good. And I had fun doing Chapel. Chapel is another character who, honestly, I have neglected over the years. She's always been there in sick bay, handing McCoy, you know, a laser or something. But it was fun to actually get put some spotlight. And she and Spock are actually leading the rescue mission because, of course, if McCoy's missing, you know, Nurse Chapel is going to be want to be part of the mission to find him. So, and they need somebody to do also the medical stuff in case yeah. somebody gets you know hurt. So, so yeah, you actually have Spock and Chapel teamed up on a mission for a good third of the book. Which was funny because I had not actually ever given Nurse Chapel that much screen time in a book before. Yeah, and and, and I was actually fans seemed to be appreciating that. I just when I was talking about the book, oh wow, you're doing something with Chapel. So she 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 gets overlooked sometimes. It was fun, you know. That's awesome, uh, Greg. I'm happy to say I read that book and I enjoyed it immensely. Oh, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I do have a question for you. You mentioned that Nurse Chapel and handing him a laser. Has there been a, I mean, technology over the past, you know, 20, 25 years has obviously evolved um, as you've been writing Star Trek. Are there challenges in trying to make the the tech of the original series? Um, I know it's future tech, but is there a challenge with trying to keep it somehow tuned into the sensibilities of sci-fi fans, you know, over the evolution of tech over the past 25 years. Oh, absolutely. One of the, which is, this is something that one wrestles with because, you know, you are dealing with a 1966 vision of the future. Exactly. On the one hand, you want to try to, you, you want, I particularly really want my TOS books to feel like a TOS episode. Um, on the other hand, you have to acknowledge the fact that, wait, my sort of rule of thumb is if we can do it now, they can do it on TOS, you know. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but you, you don't want to, you know, make it cognitive dissonance by having the characters texting each other all the time, even though presumably they can do that, you know. Right. But so it, 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 it's a balancing act. You kind of, you know, sort of assume that, you know, fine – you know, like I said, my rule of thumb is if you, we can do it now, they can do it in the 23rd century. Yeah. Uh, while also trying not to make it too egregiously, you know, I, I tend to sort of, you don't want the things to read like a period piece written in an imaginary. Although, honestly, it, that, that's a judgment call. And I honestly, I, I probably lean towards retro. I, I you know, there, there's actually a review on Amazon right, right now of the new Star Trek book where the guy goes, Oh, this book is a hoot. I mean, wow. It reads like it was written in 1966. Uh-huh. Now, by the way, the review, he's giving me a review. But it's like, ah, you know, boy, Greg Cox is having somebody writing this retro campy 1966 episode. Okay. Well, you know, right. <laughs> it works for you. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. He actually appreciate said, it. Yeah, you'd never know this book wasn't written in 54 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I, you, you get this issue. It's like, gee, should McCoy be doing, you know, CPR? You know, you know, uh, you know um, and it, there is the fact that, like I said, of course, as things evolve. We do have discovery in strange new worlds. And this allows, gives me a little more leeway. That, oh, 
my rule of thumb is if they can do it on Discovery, if they can do it on Strange New Worlds, I can put it in a star I can put it in a TOS novel now because we now know that oh, people have cybermatic memory implants. Good. That's a new toy I can use, you know. Right, right. You, you don't want to be too flagrant about it, but oh, oh good, good. Can I get can they can could they do this in, well, they did it on Discovery, bang, I can do it in a TOS novel now. Right. So. And I know that drives some purists nuts. That's but right. I appreciate having a new bag of toys, frankly. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, it, oh, it, yeah. it adds to your arsenal. It gives you uh, more tools to work with and to make the story fresh and come alive. And I, I, have, I have more alien races I can refer to. It's like, oh, good. I can mention Kelpians now. I don't have to keep you know talking about Hortas and, uh, you know. Right, right. Again, if, 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 if you know, so that, that sort of, but yeah, it is sort of a balancing act of remembering that it's, and even sort of the dialogue, since it's, you know, 1966 colloquial dialogue, you know, that, that's the one difference when I did write my one Kelvin novel, which sadly never saw print, was remembering that, the you know, Chris Pine Kirk does not sound like William Shannon Kirk simply because they're movies made in different generations and the dialogue is a little more contemporary. Star Trek, you know, has contemporary dialogue, but contemporary dialogue, you know, in a pig's eye, you know, whatever, you know, versus, you know, you know, Chris Pine's probably, I can say, whoa there, what's going on? You know, um, right. my rule of thumb when I was writing the Kelvin book, honestly, was if I could imagine William Shatner doing this dialogue, I'm doing it wrong. You know, um, right. interesting. you know, um, it, it, but that's to be, you know, like I said, or, you know. With 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 TOS, you are writing to some degree in nineteen, but you are writing it for modern audiences. Right. In uh, we so again, you you can get into an actual debate, and this would be a good panel on shore leave. You know, assuming that you are writing in nineteen sixty six a book, on, do you write it the books as the show would be done now and written now in twenty twenty one? It is twenty twenty one now, right? Yeah, right. And or do you <laughs> write it as you written back in, yeah, and some things you, you know, you, and that's, I think different writers would probably enter both ways, you know, right. um, I, I, I tend to default to when in doubt, I want to make it feel like a 66 episode or people, hi, I'm going to do TOS as it would be done nowadays, you right. know, whatever. So. Right. Makes sense. And you probably have different readers with different expectations too. I mean, yeah. But, and, and of course, there's not, and again, there's, there's, there's levels of stuff. You, you, you know, we don't need to carry over the 1966 sexism necessarily into 2020. Yeah, absolutely you know. not. That is true. Yeah. Well, so you, you take the good stuff and you leave, you know, the other stuff, you know. But Kirk does need his shirt ripped. Just saying. I, you know, I, I, I have no <laughs> shirt on occasion. And yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not going to resist having Bones say, um, you know, damn it, Jim, you know, I'm a doctor, you know. Right. Although I limit myself to one, I'm a doctor per book. As, <laughs> oh, okay. The official rule is I limit myself to, and sometimes this is a hard one. Like, do I go for that one? Or I limit myself to one, you know, damn it, I'm a doctor, not a exorcist. Yeah, right. You know, um, <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, you think about it. He probably only said it once every so few episodes. If you do it a few times in a book, it sounds a little gratuitous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
That's awesome. And I love doing Vulcan mind melds, so I'll, I'll throw them in. I'm occasionally, I'm occasionally, my editors will remind me, Greg, you don't have to put a mind meld in every book. Oh, sure I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who's writing this book anyways? Mind meld. Yeah. Mind meld goes in there. <laughs> so. The challenge also, again, just for me personally, having been writing these books for indeed a quarter century now, is I'm always looking for things that I haven't done yet. And a lot of that involves like, oh, Nurse Chapel, Sulu, you know, Oh, let, let let me write a, a book that's Sulu centric. Let me make sure I throw in a subplot and do something with Yura this time. Let me, or just pairing up the characters. Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to send Spock and Chekhov off on a solo adventure and see and bounce them off each other? You know, yeah. Because there's kind of a fun dynamic occasionally between them in an episode. Sometimes just watching old episodes. Where do I get the ideas? You see an old episode, and it's like. Oh, that was kind of an interesting thing they never followed up on. I should, you know, do that. Yeah, fill in the gaps. It's awesome. It's awesome. I, I can give yeah. one specific example. Um, Conscience of the King ends with Lenore Caridian, you know, having a nervous breakdown and going totally insane. And But there's a little tagline at the end where McCoy's going, is talking to Kirk. Don't worry, you know, Jim, she'll get the best, you know, psychiatric care the Federation can give her. And that's you know I remember watching the episode and thinking, hmm, well, whatever happened there? Did 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 the Federation manage to cure her? Did she ever recover? Was she released and judged? You know, and by God, I got it. And sure enough, I got an entire book out of that. Um, Foul deeds will arise, which is basically the return of Lenore Caridian. Like, well, what did happen to Renicori? Did did she get cured? Did she see a psychiatrist? How did she feel afterwards? What, what happened the next time Kirk ran into her, the supposedly rehabilitated Lenora Caridium, you know, and I can go, that's a book, but it's literally just sitting around watching, rewatching an old episode. Hmm. And that's where the ideas come from. Just rewatching. That, that's something, that's something I've appreciated as somebody who's enjoyed Star Trek novels for decades is like TOS and any other series will do it sometimes also is they'll, they'll just kind of leave the, leave these giant loose ends and we'll never see them them try to be neatly tied. But you and many of your fellow authors will take that and then run with it and create this whole new story. And we get to find out what happened to them. And so that's something I've always enjoyed as, as a reader of Star Trek novels. Well, going back to the con novels, I mean, the whole business about the eugenics wars in the 1990s, that's like about three lines of dialogue in Spacey and a couple lines of dialogue you know, in Wrath of Khan, I, I, I joke about the fact that I got like two books out of about three lines of dialogue <laughs> in DC, you know. Um, but yeah, you look for these things you can sort of seize on and, oh, you know, whatever happened there, whatever happened to that character and, you know, gee, whatever happened to, you know, again, so Gridian, they shipped her off to the Federation sanitarium. Did she get better? Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's a book, you know. Um, yeah. It's awesome. Well, do you have, uh, do you have anything else coming down the, uh, you said you're still writing, you're writing full time. Are there, is there, you obviously this came out in November. Um, anything coming down the pike that you can share um, that's, that, 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 that's good. That, that's in the pipeline that we can be looking forward to. Yeah. I've, I've been, you know, uh, I, I don't have any big novels that I can announce at the moment. Uh, nothing, but I've been doing, I got a handful of interesting projects. Uh, I wrote in, there's a book coming out, which is an episode guide to season two of the original 19, 
old Batman TV series. And I wrote an essay for that. I did a, I wrote an essay about a three-part Penguin episode. And incidentally, lots of other Trek writers are in that. Bob Greenberger, Keith DeCandido, The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a volume two. This was a Kickstarter project organized by Bob Greenberger. I think it's called Thrilling Adventure Tales, volume two, which is a collection of sort of pulp-style stories. And that's yeah. coming out next year or so. Yeah, Date, Dayton, Dayton and Dilmore, are, are they in that one? There was, there was a previous volume. I was not in volume one. Volume two is coming out now. Okay, good. And that was great. I, I wrote an old-fashioned sword and sorcery story. I was in a mood to write a, you know, Conan-esque sword and sorcery story. So that's I wrote awesome. that. And that's coming out. And just, there's another project coming out, I believe, in March. I, I, I should have written down the release dates. These are all coming out in 2021. A book called Turning the Tide. And this is a charity anthology. It's being put out by the International Association of Media Italian Writers. And yes, there is an International Association of Media Italian Writers. Mm-hmm. And we are putting out a charity anthology to benefit the World Literacy Fund. And the idea there was to get a bunch of us, you know, media tie-in writers. And do, we'd each do stories based on public domain characters. So we wouldn't have to deal with any sort of, you know, licensing or details. Um, pay for the rights. So, no, uh, again, the usual suspects, Bob Greenberger, Keith Canado, David Ward, Aaron Rosenberg, etc., um, are all writing stories about famous characters in literature. Um, I picked up on Mina Harker from Dracula. I believe Aaron Rosenberg, who is our Star Trek author, um, is doing Sinbad. And so uh, someone else is doing Hopalong Cassidy. Someone else, I think, is doing, you know, She from, you know, H. Ryder Haggard. So that was a point of Paul. And this is a charity anthology. We all donated our stories free of charge. And that's for a book called um, Turning the Tide, T-I-E-D, get the pun, like Tide and tie-in writers. Right, got it. <laughs> and yeah, that's coming out shortly. I'm, I'm expecting the galleys this weekend. I have to prove the one last time. There's the Thrilling Adventure Tales, Volume 2, which is about a sword and sorcery story for you. And also, I think coming out like March or April is, like I said, uh, this is there's a series of Batman episode guides. Volume 1 has come out already. I wasn't in that one. I'm in volume two, which covers season two, and I'm doing a three. I'm covering the Penguin's short-lived career as a film director. Mm-hmm. Remember, there's a three-parter where he, he, he claims he's directing a movie. It's all part of a scam, but, you know. Of course. I, I actually had fun. I, review, I, I decided to approach that episode from the point of view of a film critic and reviewed the movie that the um, Penguin is supposedly filming, you know, while he was as a cover for his heist of the Gotham city mint, you know, um, very cool. That's awesome. Well, that was fun. So I've been, you know, while working on, I've got various other projects in the works I can't talk about. Right. Um, in fact, I was just right before coming, talking to you, I was talking to my agent about a project that is out on submission now and I'm crossing my fingers and waiting to hear about. So, but in the meantime, I'm all stuck here at home in the pandemic. I've been writing about Batman. I wrote a sort of sorcery story, and I wrote about Mina Harker from yeah. Dracula. That's awesome. That was fun. So other than uh, science fiction that you're writing and publishing and that you're researching for your books, um, what else are you just enjoying in the world of science fiction? Um, what are you watching? What are you reading? What's oh, lots in- of stuff. 
Go ahead. Um, okay. I just finished, in terms of reading, and I've been, boy, my 2B red file, I'm making a dent into thanks to the pandemic. There's no convention. You know, right. um, I just read something called the Devabod trilogy by S.A. Chakraborty. Forgive me if I've mispronounced her name, which is this big, wonderful, epic um, fantasy trilogy set in the Middle East. Very Arabian Nights flavor, genies, ghouls, flying carpets. I, it's like a thousand, the books are like 600 pages long, and I devoured them all in a month. I really enjoyed them. That's awesome. Uh, yesterday, I finally, I'm, I'm late to the party. I finally binge watched WandaVision. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I watched all the five episodes in one day. And so I am now ready for tomorrow, and I'm really enjoying that. I'm, you know, the Vision, the Scarlet Witch were always some of my favorite characters from Marvel Comics growing up. Um, I, I've even written them on occasion. Um, so yeah, I, I finally got around to binge watching the series yesterday when I should have been writing. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm taking. The, I, I took care of some business in the morning. Uh, I'm also doing, still doing some freelance editing for Tor Books, which is another of my side gigs. And I'm currently editing a series of books called The Devil's Quintet, or more specifically, Stan Lee's The Devil's Quintet. And it's a series of novels based on a superhero team that Stan Lee invented before passing. And an author named Jay Bonansinga is now working from Stan's notes to expand it out into a I think quadrilogy of novels now. Oh. And I just, I finished editing book one and book one, I believe comes out January, 2022. Well, that's been a fun project, you know, to work on. I think, I believe Jay is currently going away in book two as we speak. Oh, I'm also enjoying resident alien on the sci-fi channel. Okay. That, that, that's, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, two That's a two dick one. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, Robert Duncan McNeil is also a producer on it, I believe. Yeah, I know he directed the first two episodes. I don't know about the, the third. I forgot to check. The third episode aired last night. I've been enjoying that. And also, I, I, I've been on a nostalgia boom of just like watching lots of, you know, my favorite old, you know, my comfort food is old monster movies, visually universal horror films, hammer films. So I, I, I always kind of alternate. Do I want to watch something new tonight or do I want to put in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, you know, uh, Valley of the Guanji or something, you know, I, I am addicted to Spanguli reruns on me TV Sunday night and Ooh, they're showing mad love with Peter Laurie, you know, uh, so. that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so Miles, uh, so you're watching WandaVision. What, what are your thoughts? I wasn't sure the first two episodes. I knew I knew something was going on, and and the whole thing of going back to 1950s, 60s, 70s TV was interesting. But uh, there's a, there's a really big payoff the last two episodes. So I don't want to give any spoilers, but it it's a it, it, it's a it's it, it's a mind blowing payoff. I thought it's like, yep, you got me. Um, I'm 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 invested now. So, um, well, I was invested, you know. Regardless, this was uh, usually the folks at Marvel can do no wrong, and so I was going to give four is a real game changer for people who you know. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the pastiches of retro TV are dead on. It, it works on different levels. On one level, about thing, too much away, it's like they're doing dead on recreations of 50s TV, 60s TV, 70s TV. But yes, there is a larger picture, an actual Marvel Comics plot going on. You know, mm-hmm. between the cracks, you, you have to wait for episode four to find out. That's the game changer when you kind of find out what's really going on, you know. And there have been hints. Yeah, of, there's been hints of it as you've kind of gone along, but this is uh, oh, that yeah. that that whole uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and now 80s. Um, that's what hooked my wife because my wife's an act. My wife has done her share of acting over the years, and so she really enjoys looking at period stuff. And the fact that they nailed it not only with the look, but even the way the dialogue is being presented, the laugh tracks, the music. The musical. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was dead on. Someone did their homework, you, you know? Well, they actually, I read somewhere, they actually went and talked to Dick Van Dyke and, you know, picked his brain. Oh. We were doing the, and yeah, and the acting actually is good, especially Elizabeth Olsen about being too spoilerly. She's doing two things at once. She's, doing a really good job of mimicking the sitcom acting and different generations of sitcom acting while occasionally letting through the, the quote, realism, uh, modern naturalistic. Every so often there's what's really happening creeps through the sort of sitcom facade. Right. But that being said, you can enjoy it on lots of different levels. Oh my God, these, the episode uh, that's taking place in the seventies. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that. No. We're, we're, we're kind of moving through the history of TV sitcoms for reasons which remain unexplained for a while. Oh, God. You know, um, the themes, the credit sequences. Well, the 70s episode is just just screams Brady Bunch Partridge Family. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't even realize until the third episode that, um, oh, God, the architecture of the house is actually changing from episode. You can see the clothing from... You know, Donna Reed to sort of Capri Pants to, you know, oh, I didn't realize until the third episode that, oh, my God, the architecture of the house is actually changing to reflect the different eras they're moving through, along with the, the dialogue and the slang and the costumes. And, oh, my God, yeah, somebody we did their homework, you know, and even sort of the, oh, the plot, the plotting, you know. Yeah. When they, when they, when they went into the very sort of peppy, you know, Partridge Family style theme song for you know the seventies version of One Division. I, I I laughed out loud. Okay, you know those of us who are old enough to remember these eras, you know. Oh God. Right, right. Well, there's a, there is a sense of a trip down memory lane as you kind of, even if even for those of you familiar with sixties TV or fifties TV, if you've ever watched one, you're like, oh yeah, that's fifties TV, or oh yeah, that's sixties TV. And then obviously for the errors that you did grow up in, it is a trip down memory lane, like. Oh yes, that reminds me of this, this, or this. So, again, not being too spoiled, I'd be curious to see how far they take this. Will, will we get a parody of '90s TV? Of you know, you know, 2020 yeah. TV eventually? You know, yeah, I don't know. And, and you know, it, and this is something that only works really for this season because how far can you really take this? Right? You you can only go so far. <laughs> so. And they are, in fact, counting on, on audiences because of the built-in investment of the modern universe to stick with it, even when it's not entirely obvious. Well, wait, why are we doing sitcom 
parodies here, oh, you yes. know. Uh, what is the bigger picture? How does this fit into the MCU? Oh, yes. Again, not too sweet. It fits into the MCU, oh, yeah. and if you have watched Infinity War and you know and all that stuff, yeah, there's 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 more going on here than just oh gosh, you know, will they burn the pot roast when the boss is coming over for dinner? You know, um, right, you know. right, right, right. That trope. Will the Scooby neighbor figure out she's a witch? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, right. you, you will get Marvel Comics Easter eggs, and yeah, it, it, it's there. There's a bigger picture, and it yeah. ties into, yeah. um, you know. And that's about as far as, but no, like I said, I binge watched it all in one day yesterday and yeah, new episode drops tomorrow. Oh yeah. I'm watching. Okay. Yep. We'll be good. So, uh, how many episodes are there? I have actually have not looked that up. Uh, I don't know how There's many. Five, five so far. Five so far. How many are slated yeah, to be released? Seven episodes, I, eight episodes. Is it? I, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. But uh, I'm also watching a uh, resident alien also, and it's positively delightful. It's just, um, Alan Tudyk is just great. The worst he gets is good, and even the even the supporting characters in the show are, are really good. There's there's just a lot of fun stuff going on at that show. That that sort of restored my faith in the Sci-Fi Channel. It's so, got a really sort of weird, twisted sensibility to it. It's you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it is. It, yeah, I, I I'm enjoying it. Yeah, like I said, an episode I'm watching it in real time last. Oh, new episode tonight! Yay! Looking coming to look forward to. You know. It was yeah. not on my radar. I mean, I, I remember it was it was supposed to debut, and I forgot about it. And I'm like, oh wait, this show. Let me see if this show is on. And there, there's three episodes on, so I think I watched the first two one night, and then caught the second. I, I had the same experience. It was kind of flying below my radar, and fortunately, Sci-Fi Channel reruns things a lot. And so I said, oh wait, that debuted last night. Oh, some of my friends seem to be liking this. Oh, well, how about that? They're showing it again tonight. I'll watch it. And then yeah. I got hooked. You know. So but yeah, it kind of like was sort of low level. I was vaguely aware he was in production, and oh wait, that 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 debuted last night. Oh, they're showing it again tonight. I'll watch it. So you know, yeah. That's so awesome. I'm invested in that show too. I haven't seen that yet, so it is on my radar yeah, to see. I do think I'm enjoying WandaVision. I'm enjoying Resident Alien. You know. Um, By the way, there's nine episodes that are being done in WandaVision for the first season. Oh, so we still have four more to go. Four more to go. Ooh. So. And, okay, I'm going to be shamelessly hinty here and say that some, at least one fan favorite character, a couple of fan favorite characters will show up if you stick with it. Okay, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> definitely. Well, so... uh Anything else, Miles, that you're watching, reading? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still reading some uh, time travel novels. Um, there's not, not a new Star Trek novel right now. but uh, So I'm reading uh, a story. I just finished reading one called Seven Rules of Time Travel by Roy Huff. Um, and I'm reading something now called uh, 30,000 BC Chronicles. Um, and I'm watching... I watched Birds of Prey on HBO Max. That was very enjoyable. It didn't get a lot of great reviews, but I th- I thought it was pretty good. Harley Quinn was was hilarious. I, I really liked that one. That was actually the last movie I saw in an actual theater before everything shut down, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, also I'm watching uh, Raised by Wolves on on HBO. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, there you go. Outside of genre, I'm watching Miss Scarlet and the Duke on PBS, which is a masterpiece mystery series about a female private eye in Victorian London. And I'm a sucker for, you know, Victorian London, you know, detective stories. So. Cool. Yeah. I've been enjoying that. Yeah. I think, I think they're into like episode three or four. So. Yeah. The only thing that, uh, I mean, we talked about WandaVision. I'm rewatching the X-Files with my son who popped in here earlier uh, and rewatching Lost with my wife, who uh, we're watching that again. Other than that, what I'm reading, I'm reading books in the Babaverse. Um, for we are many, we are legion. Um, I forget who the author is for that. I should have wrote that down, but uh, but I'm really enjoying it. And there's lots of it. It reads a little bit like Ready Player One or Ready Player Two where there's all these references to pop culture. Well, we don't, we don't have those references, but it deals with like uh, replicant technology and these replicants name themselves and they're, and they're named for all these geek characters. Like there's a Riker and there's a Homer and then there's a, there's a Marvin and then there's um, there's just all these and they all reference to stuff and geek them. And so, uh, but the story itself is entertaining and compelling. And so I'm really enjoying it. It's by Dennis E. Taylor is the guy that wrote it. And uh, it's part of the Baba verse. I think there's four books in the series is my understanding. And so that's the one that I've been enjoying recently. And then I saw Lord of the Rings in 4k, which Lord of the Rings was f- fabulous as always, but, I didn't really notice any huge difference watching it in 4K and just watching it regularly. So, um, oh, another book I read recently was Ninth House by I think Leigh Bardugo, okay, which is about spooky occult goings on at Yale University. The conceit being that the various societies there are skull and bones and whatnot are involved in oh. creepy supernatural stuff. That was that was fun. That's awesome. Although it left me hanging for the sequel, which apparently hasn't been published yet. So, oh. <laughs> oh, that's so often. Well, I discovered the Dave Bob trilogy, which I mentioned earlier, after all three books had all come out. So I was able to go, you know, breeze right, right, you know, put down one, pick up the next one, you know. Oh, and that's, that's always nice, right? Yeah. But, well, good. The advantage of coming late to a book series is you can then sort of, you know, binge them. So. Right. Uh, nice going into the series when you have all of them there and you don't have to wait. Sure. But um, well, Miles, is there any 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 other anything else that we need to talk about tonight? Uh, Greg, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us where people could find your, your your great novels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, obviously, you know, um, I will take a moment to plug. Zenkaikon, and forgive me, I'm probably mangling pronunciation of that. Oh, Zenkaikon's um, the way I've always pronounced it. So. I, but yeah, um, coming up in March, uh, Zenkaikon will be having a virtual convention. I'll be one of the featured guests talking about writing and editing. Uh, more details as they firm up. I'm sure they'll be posting about it on their Facebook page and the webpage. Right. Beyond that, in you know, at present, I'm not you know, obviously, you know, doing any autographings or anything, but I hang out a lot at a lot of the Star Trek um, book groups on Facebook. I hang out at the Trek BBS discussion groups and, you know, socialize virtually with, you know, talking about Star Trek and other stuff. 
Cool. Right. And like I said, my most recent book is, you know, Star Trek, a contest of champions. So, right. And they are available wherever fine books are found. Or, right. You know. Yeah. And, uh, do you, do you have a, uh, do you have a page that kind of collects everything Greg Cox or like a webpage? I do have a webpage. I update it infrequently, but yeah, it has a full bibliography, even including that long ago necrophilia story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, that can be found. It's at Greg Cox dash author.com. And honestly, just Google me. It, it comes up. It comes I'm, up. You know, I'm not the politician in San Diego. That's a different Greg Cox. Yeah. Um, so the, the Greg Cox who writes Star Trek and Planet of the Apes and Godzilla, that's me. That's you. That's you. That's the guy I want to know. It's the guy that Miles wants to read. So. Yep. That's awesome. Well, Greg, uh, it's been a pleasure having you here on the show just to talk about your your life. Um, You mentioned that we probably heard the process of writing, but Miles, I don't know that we ever really sat down and talked about how do you go from, you know, writing and conception and pitching and all that. We don't really get into that many times when we talk to authors. So I was very glad that you kind of shared that. It was a, it was just neat to hear what's going on in your world and what, what inspires you and what makes you come alive when you're writing. And so I appreciate you kind of sharing that journey with us. Very good. Yeah. Well, I, I find there's a lot of confusion about the whole media tie in world. Like, well, so I, I, I like to dispel that whenever possible, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. How do you write a world? How do you write a warehouse 13 book? You know, mm-hmm. do you have to pay Star Trek to write the books? No, 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 no. They pay yeah. me. Okay. Yeah. They pay you. Uh, <laughs> no, I've actually had, sincere people with good intentions. So how much do you have to pay to get your Star Trek books published? Oh, oh no, no, no. That's not how it works. You know? that's <laughs> how, yep. No, no, they, they pay you. That's awesome. Yeah. I think they find it sometimes inconceivable that someone would pay you to write a Star well, Trek. If you, if you got a second, the thing, the thing I find is a very common misconception is the idea that somehow honestly, that we initiate these projects. Most of these projects are not initiated by the authors. They begin with me getting a phone call saying, hey, Greg, we're doing 4,400 books. What's your schedule like? Um, I don't get in the morning and decide, hey, I'm going to write a Warehouse 13 novel and then somehow arrange it to get published, you know. Right. Someone calls me and says, hey, Greg, we just bought the rights to do Warehouse 13 novels. You ever seen the show? You know. So. Right. Well, you know, it's I, it breaks my heart. People come to me and say, Hey, I've written a 350 page Winona Earp novel. How do I get it published? That's really not how it works, you know? And that's probably a different between doing your own original material versus tie in work. Exactly. You write your original stuff, you can send it out, you know? Yeah. And again, but even just sort of, you know, I don't write a tie in novel until the outline has been approved. You know, I don't just write a 300 page book and then throw it a pocketbooks and hope they publish it. You know, right. it's like, no, work it out. You know, yeah, there's... whereas in, in original fiction world, typically, you know, Oh, you know, you're an, I have been, I've been a full-time editor. I work nine to five at four books. You get a submission from an agent, you read it. The agent possibly has sent it out to multiple, you know, editors and somebody buys it, you know, um, that's, that's traditional publishing. Right. Media tie publishing works differently and that confuses right. people. Right. I think also because people are used to the idea of books being, of movies being based on books. The idea of books being based on movies confuses people. Right. I always have to, wait, you, you invented Godzilla? No, 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 no. Yeah. No. <laughs> I wish. Okay. Yes. Yeah, How so, old 
I am. Okay, you know. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. That's awesome. So that's novelizations, which is a whole other kind of words. Okay, yeah. so. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for being a part of the Sci-Fi Diner tonight. It's been great okay. having you on. And uh, and if you get a chance, uh, be uh, visiting the Zinc Icons Facebook page or their their home site, and you'll find out when you can actually interact and hear Craig as he's on panels, various panels on writing. If you want to know more about the writing process. This will be a- because, like I said, that will work much better if I'm getting comments from the audience. And, you know, it's going to be set up probably a Zoom thing where people, right. I'm people will post questions, you know, right in the chat box, and I'll be able to. Oh, I've got a question asking me about you know Star Trek novels. Well, you know, let me tell you about that. Do you have like three hours? I'll talk to you all about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Miles, um, it sounds like we have a show here. Next episode, I guess we are reviewing, is it Picard? Is that right? Yes. We're gonna yes be- we've been reviewing all the Star Trek pilots. And uh, we, uh, Dayton joined us for um, Discovery last time. And uh, we, Picard is our next uh, one we're going to look back on. Yep. Sounds good. So, all right. Well, Miles, you want to take us out of the show? All right. Till next time, good night and good luck. We'll see ya. Yeah.